Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Faith Focus Weekly Discipleship Podcast. My name is Kevin Rognes, and I'm the Discipleship Director here at Faith Covenant Church. And I just want to say thank you for watching or for listening today, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on any of the major podcasting platforms. I just want to encourage you, as I always do, to make sure you hit the subscribe button to ensure that you're always getting the weekly content that we are putting out um, to help you in your discipleship journey. So recently, we've been going through a variety of spiritual disciplines, and to do that, I've been using this book called Spiritual Disciplines Companion by Jen Johnson. And a spiritual discipline can be defined as anything that helps us to connect with God. We've looked at a variety of different things, and today we're going to look into something, um, a pair of concepts called reflection and confession. Now, that word confession is sometimes kind of a uh, alarming word for many of us that have grown up in the Protestant tradition, and maybe for some of us that have also grown in, up in the Catholic tradition as well. Within the Catholic tradition, um, confession is a very important practice. They consider it a sacrament, and that's something that they do with the priest on a regular basis. Now, the Bible has lots of precedent for confessing sin both to God and with other people. So this is something that even though Protestants especially often have kind of a reaction to it because there's sometimes a reaction to some of the practices of the Catholic Church, this is something that we do need to be practicing in some form. It doesn't necessarily have to look the way it does in the Catholic Church, but it is a vital and important part of our faith. So, to kick off this discussion of Jan Johnson's book, I'm going to look at what she writes generally about reflection and confession um, before delving deeper into what uh, she has to say. She writes that many people find the idea of reflecting on mistakes and owning up to them is discouraging. For today's performance-driven Christians, self-examination might as well be self-annihilation. But such thinking is part of the murky distortion that God is upset with you unless you do everything right and that your spirituality is really about you. Quite to the contrary. We realize that as disciples of Jesus, we are dust and that God delights in shaping us into new creations. Faith is centered not on our performance, but the constant choice of God to love us, accept us, and transform us into creatures who know how to love. Reflection and confession are some of the ways that God shows us the way forward, if we're willing to look. Scripture is clear that confessing sins and praying with others is a positive move in the healing process, and it says that in James 5.16. The never giving up love of God, who doesn't keep a record of wrongs, far outweighs our sins. Our brutal honesty is met by God's gritty acceptance, and the result is that we are bonded to the heart of God. I just love the way that she phrases these ideas of reflection and confession, and it's a great reminder that when we reflect on mistakes that we've made or sins in our lives, and when we confess those, that doesn't have to be a negative spiral about our self-worth. This is not about 
uh, thinking about how much God may not like us or our behaviors. This is actually about how much God loves us and is willing to forgive us when we confess those sins. So she defines in, in this book six different pieces to reflection and confession that you can work on. And the first is simply believing in a God who heals. So about that, she says this. She asks the question, why are we so reluctant to admit our errors, even to God? It probably has to do with our view of God. Belief in a forgiving, healing God provides a safe atmosphere in which to admit our sins. Our objection to admitting sin fade away. And she gives a couple examples. So one objection is that admitting sin makes us feel like failures. And the truth is that unlike us, God is not shocked that we sin. Another objection is that admitting sin makes us feel like God is mad at us. But the truth is that the scope of God's grace is nothing short of astonishing. God is so compassionate that we cannot imagine it. And in looking at that, she cites um, as an example of these ideas of God being so compassionate about us. She looks at Psalm 103. I'm not going to read the entirety of this psalm, but I am going to read um, Psalm 103 verses 11, 14. I think they're just a really poignant example of what God's forgiveness looks like for us. And so it says, again, this is Psalm 103, 11 through 14. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. And I love that imagery of our, or our transgressions being removed as far as the east is from the west. I think that's just a really cool imagery. I think of, you know, kind of where the sun rises and the sun sets. Like, to me, that's kind of the distance of the east and west. And that's, that's quite a distance. <laughs> and so I just, I really love that imagery. And I'm really thankful that um, Jan Johnson brings it out this way in helping us to remember that we don't have to be reluctant to admit our mistakes to God. God removes our transgressions and our sins from us when we confess that. So along those same lines, we move to the second section, which is all about letting God search our hearts. And she has this quick thing that I really appreciated um, that she writes about letting God search our hearts. In interaction with God, we hear God's voice of gentle correction, especially when we're serving others and when we're reading and meditating on Scripture. In such moments, God probes our hearts, helping us to see that what causes, helping us see what causes uh, us to offer hurtful innuendo, to ignore people, to pretend that we are better than we are. So letting God search our hearts is really an opportunity for us to grow. When God search our hearts, God prompts us to change in ways that make us more like him. 
So one of the examples of, from the Bible that she cites as an example of this is from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 7. This is a very famous passage that we often hear in weddings, and I'm going to read a couple of those verses. I'm just going to read verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians uh, 13. It says, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So when God searches our heart, God can help us to get into this posture of loving as he loves. Also, it reminds us that God's love is patient, it's kind. Um, when we have these moments of having flaws, God is always patient with us. And that is very much a relief for me, and I hope for you as well. The next section that we'll look at is the actual act of confessing to God. And for this, we look at a little bit of Psalm 51, which is almost entirely about confession. And so um, I'm only going to read verses 10 through 12 of Psalm 51, which says, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. I just think that's such a beautiful uh, description of what confession looks like, having a clean heart created by God. It's not something we do. We confess that our hearts are not clean, but God then gives us a clean heart. Jan Johnson writes about confessing to God and says, the purpose is always to love God more and be more enthralled with the great God who loves us. Confessing is not about destructive introspection or morbid brooding on failures. It brings freedom and all sorts of benefits, including transparency with God and with others. Coming clean this way helps us accept our weaknesses as well as our strengths, our brokenness as well as our giftedness. And I think that's just such a great description of that. I love the idea of confessing, bringing out both strengths and weaknesses, brokenness and giftedness. That is what is helping us draw closer to God in the end. Well, the next part is the part that sometimes we get really uncomfortable with because, again, it's easier to uh, confess our sins to God in privacy than it is to confess to other people. And some of us often think that we don't have to confess to other people because we've confessed to God. And so Jan Johnson writes about that um, and she says this, the assumption that confessing only to God is always enough is a reflection of the individualistic mindset inherent in today's Western culture. Since the beginning of the church, Confession to others has always been practiced widely. When early 20th century Canadian missionary Jonathan Goforth preached throughout China, it was not unusual for Christians to confess their sins publicly 
for several hours. The result was that the townspeople saw a tremendous change in these Christians, came to the meetings, and then became Christians themselves. So many advantages come to those who unburden themselves to another person. In Proverbs 28.13 it says, He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Confession, followed by prayer, facilitates healing. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. In uh, 1 Peter and 2 Corinthians, it says that we are all a chosen race, a royal priesthood with the ministry of reconciliation, equipping us to receive each other's confessions. Now, again, that is just illustrating the need for why we have to confess to people as well as to God. When we do that, it brings our sin into the light and shows other people what it is to be a Christian. It shows what it means to hold ourselves accountable for sin and to then show others how we can change through the grace of God and through prayer. When looking at biblical examples of this, Jan Johnson cites the story of David in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. We're not going to read all of it, but I can kind of summarize it for you. In these passages, David, the king of Israel, has an affair with his neighbor's wife. Um, his neighbor is also one of his soldiers. So David has this affair with the wife, Bathsheba, and afterwards, when she becomes pregnant by that affair, he decides to try to cover it up by getting the husband of Bathsheba killed in battle. So it looks like he didn't actually kill him, but really David was responsible for that. Later on, Nathan, one of David's advisors and one of the, like, the priestly figures in Israel at the time, he confronts David and says, you have done this bad thing. And when confronted, David does say, yes, indeed, I confess this, I have done wrong. It's a very powerful story in scripture of somebody being restored after confessing their sin. And Jan Johnson also had something interesting to say about um, David's uh, confession in here. Um, whoops, I'm on the wrong page. Um, she writes this and says, David covered up well. He pretended to be unconcerned and feigned encouragement to others. Wanting to continue the cover-up, he waited until a respectable time of mourning was over before marrying Uriah's widow, Bathsheba. Uriah was the man that David had killed in battle. Overall, he was flippant and insensitive. While he grieved deeply for Saul and Abner, his rivals, he showed no grief for Uriah, a good man with strong spiritual character. Why? Deliberate, repeated sinning had dulled David's sensitivity to God's laws and others' rights. The more you try to cover up a sin, the more insensitive you become to it. I thought that was just such a potent thing to um, talk about because oftentimes, even though we may confess something to God, with others, we may be covering up our sins and that desensitizes us to our sin. 
That's a very, very big problem that we do not want to be a part of. We want to always be bringing sin into light. That is the biblical standard. Then uh, going on to um, look at the next section is uh, recognizing God's presence in my life. And she looks at Psalm 65. We're not going to read that. I'm just going to encourage you to read that. Um, it's a really beautiful psalm. Um, but this is just kind of recognizing God's presence in our daily lives. And she writes this about that. This process of recollection is part of what has been called the prayer of examine, a prayer pattern used for centuries by Christians. It has two parts, the examination of conscience and the examination of consciousness. In the examination of uh, of conscience, uh, we search for wrongs done and then admit them. In the examination of consciousness, we gently search our lives for divine moments. We ask ourselves questions such as these. Did I meet God in the joy or pain of others? Did I bring Christ into my world in some way? Did anyone bring God to me? Did I reach out to someone in trouble or sorrow? Did I fail or refuse to do so? Did something happen to me today that gave me a keener sense of being loved or being angry and tired or needing God in some special way? Is there any concrete event of the day that revealed some part of my life that I am withholding from God. Prayers of examine change our way of seeing and become a rhythm of life. In fact, many people use such prayers every single evening, while others use them once a week or once a month or once a year. They enlighten us to the brilliant hue of our connection with God. So this prayer of examine is, again, something that's been around for centuries that has been practiced for Christians, by Christians, for a very, very long time. And it's just a really great practice um, at the end of a day or at the end of a week, month, year, whatever it may be, of just examining the last period of time and saying, is there something I've done wrong? Is there something I need to confess? How has God been at work in my life? How has God been at work around me, in me, through me, through others. Just a really great way of recognizing God's presence in our life. The last section that she talks about in terms of uh, reflection and confession is something called journaling. Journaling is something that I'm a big advocate of, and this looks like a lot of different things for a lot of different people. Um, But she has a really great example from a well-known author named Madeline Lengel. Um, She wrote uh, something called, uh, I believe she was the writer of A Wrinkle in Time, which is kind of a a young adult fiction classic. Um, But Madeline Lengel had this to say about journaling, and I think it's really potent for us. A help to me in working things out has been to keep an honest, unpublishable journal. Not long ago, someone I love said something which wounded me grievously. So, in great pain, I crawled to my journal and wrote it all out in a great burst of self-pity. And when I had set it down, I saw that something I myself had said had called forth the words which had hurt me so. It had, in fact, been my own fault. But I would never have seen it had I not written it out. 
Jan Johnson then reacts to what Madeleine Lengel said there and writes, uh, the revelatory nature of a journal, um, or she, sorry, let me start over. Uh, Jan Johnson writes about how Madeleine Lengel responds to this and says that as we put experiences and feelings into concrete words, we create an opportunity for God to speak to us. The point of journaling is to reveal the inner workings of our hearts with complete honesty, so we see ourselves and our behavior more clearly. That's why a journal is an ideal place to admit our sins or sort out what we need to say to God. A journal also invites us to explore issues of neediness behind our sin. Why am I so angry? Journaling must not, however, degenerate into spiritual navel-gazing. It's merely another way to connect with God. If writing words seems too tedious for you, you can jog, or ride a bike, or do stitchery, or release thoughts to God in a similar way. We focus our bodies on an activity while pondering before God in a less formal way. So it's just a way of putting into concrete words the things that we're experiencing so that we can get deeper into the roots of our motivation of what we're saying and doing. Journaling is a really great practice that I practice on a daily basis, and I just I cannot encourage it enough. Um, but again, it doesn't work for everybody that way. Not everybody is inclined to sit there and write um, for a period of time. So maybe it's better to just have a dialogue with God in your thoughts as you do some other activity, like going for a walk or um, working on a puzzle, something like that. It can take a lot of forms. Again, like I've said in previous episodes, spiritual practices take on many different forms. What we're looking at is just some suggestions that those forms can kind of fill up into. So we're going to be continuing our uh, series on spiritual disciplines next week. We're going to continue looking through this book. Um, I'm finding it very helpful, and I hope that you are as well. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, stories you want to share, um, please let me know. I would love to hear your feedback. My email address is listed in the description of the episode, and you can contact me that way. In the meantime, I hope you have a wonderful and blessed day.